0: Everyone has a story, I get them to tell it. Welcome to the Aaron Bender podcast, conversations with media personalities about their personal and professional lives and journeys. Thank you for all your support, all your subscribing and sharing and rating and reviewing. The more people who listen, the more guests I get to tell their stories. Also pop over to YouTube to the Aaron Bender podcast channel for exclusive video content with my guests and like. The Aaron Bender podcast on Facebook. Before we get to my conversation with Emily D. Baker, the badass lawyer, a little about my story. I'm a widowed dad of two girls who just lost their mom, a grieving husband, a man in recovery trying to reconnect with the world with fresh eyes, faith, and perspective a college journalism professor, a white guy in a world of injustice, a 20-year broadcast media veteran who had his dream job and then lost it. A year and a half ago, God gave me a gift, an opportunity to stop, step back, and breathe so I can learn about love, vulnerability, forgiveness, grace, self-care, patience, and understanding. Emily D. Baker is the badass lawyer. She traded the courtroom for the creator studio and now has one of the more popular legal commentary channels on YouTube. We talk about moving from Southern California to Tennessee in the middle of the pandemic, grappling with identity when your career is taken away and how her family has grown from it, how she picks the cases she covers and how her channel gained 55,000 subscribers in just a month. But we start where every conversation with the current or former LA County Deputy District Attorney begins, DA George Gascon.
1: I, 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 don't, I don't have enough energy for thoughts on George Gascon. I, most of my close friends are like, what do you think? I'm like, do you own a gun? And they're like, no. And I'm like, you should do that now. You should just do that now. Um, I've watched, I mean, people I've trained with, John Hatami was a DA that I trained with who's now suing the county and and has gone on yeah, a good, full offensive. Good friend of mine.
0: Yeah, I've had him on my other podcast for the right, Santa Clara John's, Valley Signal. Yes,
1: fantastic. And um, just watching what what DAs like John are going through, and knowing them since the, when we all become DAs, you know, you all are you really get to know why people are taking the job when you're all in training and you're new, and and nobody took the job to do what they're doing now. I've seen great bosses run out. Um, of the office. I I think the lawsuits are going to continue. And of course, the floggings will continue until morale improves. Um, The disbanding of the hardcore gang unit. I don't think it's in the best interest of the people. And I don't think the people understand that it's not in the best interest of the people, because the people who think that this is a great idea are the people who live in communities that aren't going to be as affected by it. And oh my. So...
0: Oh, got you all riled up. We're only three minutes in. I mean, (laughs) it's just, it's just,
1: yeah. Yeah. It's been a, it's been an interesting thing watching what's going on in the DA's office. So I, I hope that some of the policies that are getting walked back instruct other policies that get walked back. I hope that, you know, some of the bail, the bail initiatives aren't the problem. It's the special allegations that I think are constitutionally mandated that need to be alleged and the loss of discretion in the office. And I think there's a, um, I don't know, a large amount of stress because it's so unknown and it seems that things aren't thought all the way through. So- you know, I think there are, are are stair steps to doing this, but I also thought Jackie Lacey was a great DA and a very transparent DA and a very fair DA. And I know not everyone agrees with that, but I enjoyed working for her.
0: You spent ten years uh, at the LA County DA's office. What were those ten years? And then now you're in Nashville. So I I think just kind of take me through, if you could. Uh, The entire timeline of your life, starting with day one, go.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was born and now I am here. Um, I became a district attorney because I really believed in the, not just the mission of the office, but the voice for victims and for victims of crime and working with communities who were being victimized by crime. And I saw LA in the time I was there from the early 2000s until leaving in 2017, I saw LA... Change and you got to see crime rates improve and communities feel safer. And that was something I was really happy to be a part of. I worked in, you know, LAX at the airport court. I worked a lot in Long Beach and seeing the communities grow and change and seeing the laws grow and change. I was personally really happy as marijuana got decriminalized and decriminalized and then legalized. Because there's some things that you're dealing with as a DA and you're like, this is just, why are we doing this? And seeing the laws catch up with that, I thought was great. Watching people vote to change the laws, I thought was great. But I believe in legislative process and separations of of political entities. I like it when the legislature makes the laws and then the people vote for the legislators. It, It works well that way. And then as I started having health issues and I had tremendous issues with burnout and other types of health issues, I realized that trying to do trial work and trying to protect myself wasn't working. I had two back surgeries inside of one year and was just really struggling and transitioned into consulting out of the DA's office with online entrepreneurs. My husband owned a business in LA and so I had worked in business a lot and once I stepped into the entrepreneur space, a lot of people are like, "Oh, you're a lawyer. Can I ask you a question?" I'm like, uh, "Sure, we can. Let's just do this." And during COVID, as that consulting business started slowing down naturally, so because businesses were struggling so much, especially in Los Angeles early in COVID, I didn't. I, I was like, "Just protect yourself. Protect your income. Do the best you can." I'm here to answer questions about AB five and and letting people have time off with all the different CARES acts and stuff. But other than that, people were closing down businesses and there wasn't really much I needed to be doing. And I shifted into the legal commentary work. And then we ended up selling a business due to the closures and moving to Tennessee. So yeah, now we're outside of Nashville. Why Tennessee? There were a lot of reasons for why Tennessee. Um, It's a very tax-friendly state, which I love. It's, um, It's open. It's beautiful. There's everything that we used to love about LA and my husband and I both grew up uh, in the South Bay our entire lives. And I was going to ask where in LA.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I grew up in Manhattan beach and so did my husband and you could drive to everything, but the crowding and the traffic, it made life much more narrow. I guess you kind of get stuck in, in the area of LA you live in because it's like, well, are we really going to do that? It's going to take us two hours to get there. We're not going to be able to park. and. Yeah. I don't know. Nashville feels like you can still go and do things and just drive to drive to the state park park and go enjoy your day. And it doesn't become this overwhelming thing with tons of people fighting for limited resources. And the weather is lovely. There's no hurricanes. There are tornadoes, (laughs) but no hurricanes, minimal earthquakes, I am told, but I think that they are very, very rare. We enjoy having some winter and a beautiful summer and the class sizes are small. People are lovely. And so it's Middle Tennessee has been very welcoming. Uh, There's lots of Californians, so that's not surprising. That's
0: what I've heard about, not necessarily just Tennessee, but you go to Oregon, you go to Idaho, you go to pretty much everywhere else in the United States. And Californians have moved there many times in droves and driven those people crazy.
1: I mean I can understand that the the Californians and the ones the Californians we have met that have moved to Tennessee I don't think are trying to change Tennessee I think they are like we love it here there's no traffic it's beautiful the air is clear and we like being here but there's a certain amount of freedom that comes with that and you hear very loud cars I'm like wait aren't there regulations on how <laughs> loud your your muffler can be and they're like no just no no there aren't just In fact the
0: regulation might be <laughs> Make it as loud as you can.
1: Yeah, we don't, we don't, we don't tell people exactly what to do. So the less people has been a really interesting thing. Living just around less people and starting COVID in Los Angeles and then moving, still during the pandemic here, there wasn't that level of stress, anxiety, and fear um, that you would feel going to like the grocery store, especially early in COVID. You could feel the anxiety in LA, and it's there's just less people here, so people are more patient at the store. The shelves aren't completely empty. It's been a very different experience. And we've been really happy with the move. We miss our family, but we've been happy with the move.
0: Take me through your process in deciding, okay, I want to start a podcast. I want to get into YouTube. Which one came first and why those spaces?
1: Absolutely. The podcast came first and it came as a way to help Uh, Entrepreneurs, particularly in the online and small business space, understand what was going on and then also do some commentary on the laws and the news as we were seeing it from a legal perspective. That's often legal commentators are given, you know, a minute, a minute and 30 seconds, and there's not much anyone can really understand in that period of time. And a podcast was the perfect format to talk about not only changes in California like AB5, but talk about. Uh, an MLM like LuLaRoe getting sued or pop culture lawsuits um, as well as the news of the day. And as that started to grow, I was talking about more and more lawsuits that actually had filed paperwork and people wanted to see the documents I was going over. And I was like, well, we can just do that on YouTube. And I had had a YouTube channel for a number of years, but it was was not much other than some tech and some fun because I really enjoy the platform. And when I started bringing the legal, the filed legal documents onto the platform and giving commentary on them while they're up on screen. So people can see what they say and see the exhibits and see the pictures side by side that Nike's posting of the the Satan shoes or whatever it is. (laughs) It became a really fun environment to make legal a conversation because when lawyers are like, well, it's not that simple. It's because there's nuance to a lot of the things we talk about, and those are for, formatted for longer form conversations. And I found visual aids really help. So YouTube became a natural platform for it. And there's lots of space for all kinds of legal commentary on YouTube. LawTube is a, is a kickin' community. It's been a lot of fun.
0: What about uh, TikTok and the other platforms? Do you feel like, okay, I've I've got YouTube down. Let me try to get these other things. Or is it the other way where you're like, you know what? I'm, I feel really safe here. YouTube is going really <laughs> well. I don't want to explore these other platforms because then that's going to take away from my bread and butter.
1: I do a little bit on other platforms, but it's more of quick updates because Again, is a conversation, and I can't do that in a minute on TikTok. It's hard to really give the full information, and I am best suited for long form content. So YouTube really gives that give and take, and I do a lot of live streaming where my audience is live with me asking questions contemporaneously about, oh, what does this mean? What is that? How does this work? What is a closing argument? How does a jury get picked? And just some of it's foundational and some of it's deeper dives. And long form gives me the space to do that. There are lots of lawyers who break things down on TikTok in a minute. I don't know how they do it. My brain doesn't work that fast.
0: (laughs) You're 5,000 or so, 5,000 subscribers away, I think, from 100,000 on YouTube. Uh, Let's come back when you are at 100,000. I want to see the purple hair, number one.
1: I'm very excited for purple hair. I'm very excited. I didn't (laughs) think starting focusing on YouTube in my 40s was going to be something that took off the way that it did. I also didn't expect it to be as lucrative as it has been because it is now my full-time job. And now I'm looking at what my channel does and I'm looking at other channels going, wait a second. I know what I make. how what? <laughs> and now I'm getting I'm getting to understand uh, influencer culture from the other side because when you hear you know influencers are making, a couple hundred thousand dollars a month, it's hard to wrap your head around until you start seeing how that really works. And you're like, oh my goodness, some of you are making over a million dollars a month on this platform and that's bananas.
0: Did it surprise you how quickly it took off? And I wanna ask also about your own evolution because as you started, you know, it's legal commentary here, some advice here, and you're like, wait a minute, I could do all these other things. And then of course, we're going to get to the toddy versus KJ. (laughs) We'll get to that in October, but lead me up to that. Did it surprise you, your own evolution and how you took to the platform and just kind of rolled with the punches?
1: It absolutely surprised me Um, because the conventional wisdom in the online space right now is people have a short attention span. People want, you know, people watch six minutes of a video, no more. There's all these kind of conventional known truths that don't always apply because those might be the the thinking. But I was surprised that for two hour live streams, we will have up to ten thousand people on a live stream talking about law and legal concepts and having fun too. And what I found is that a lot of my community is really engaged in, Hey, if I'm going to spend an hour watching something, I love coming away, learning something too. So I was very pleasantly surprised by that. I followed my own interest as I was doing my podcast. I really got pulled more and more towards the pop culture side of commentary. A, I don't see a lot of it in the space and B, not a lot of lawyers have been as deeply invested into pop culture over their (laughs) lives as I have. Um, I always found time to keep up with things like Real Housewives and reality television and when I picked juries, and this is not something I talk about often, but when I picked juries, I used to look for the people that were walking and carrying Us Weekly. If you came in with a 700-page novel, I'm you're, you're probably not on my jury, unless it's Neil Gaiman, and then maybe okay. But <laughs> the people coming in with Us Weekly and the pop culture references tended to gel with my personality on a jury better, and that's really who I'm talking to on YouTube. But I went from, at the end of October, I was... On a live stream talking to my audience about how excited I was to get to 5,000 subscribers. By the end of November, we had gained an additional 55,000 subscribers and it just kept growing from there. I was very, very surprised by the growth. And I was surprised that people were so invested in going through these documents and seeing what happened next. I'm like, you guys know that court, court processes go slow. And then we started covering the Tati Westbrook case and it did not go slow at all. And then we started covering Erica uh, Jane and Tom Girardi's case, and that has filings almost every day in court. And these things are not moving nearly as slow as a lot of litigation normally does.
0: And especially in Los Angeles, where everything is just at a snail's pace. It surprises me, like the Derek Chauvin trial. It's been less than a year since George Floyd died, since he was murdered. Now, if this was in California, we'd still be in motions And a jury would be like probably a year or two away because then we'd have to do change of venue and all the other things that go along with the law in California. It's so surprising how so other surprised. states boom just like that
1: i was so surprised i was so surprised that during a pandemic when courts had been shut down not only did they charge quickly um because normally with officer involved you'll see nine months of an investigation yes. before there's even a charge um i was very surprised at how quickly the chauvin case moved. but watching it play out on television you're like well they've got all the evidence i mean they got everything done and i think when you work in LA, you forget that other states are not nearly as backlogged. And I've seen that here in Tennessee as well. We went to the DMV, no appointment to get driver's licenses. It took 30 minutes. And (laughs) part of that was because I wanted my picture retaken. And they're like, okay, you'll get it in the mail next week. I'm like, really? And the same with our license plates. We went on like a Wednesday to get license plates. And by the next Wednesday, they were in our mailbox. And when states aren't as backlogged and just don't have the millions and millions of people things do move more quickly. LA is backlogged. The resources are thin and I think they absolutely do the best they can. But courts were also more aggressively shut down in California and in LA County than other places too. What are your thoughts
0: on the Chauvin trial and verdicts?
1: I was surprised um, that they came back on all of the charges. I thought that the easiest conviction, and I said this from the beginning, was the manslaughter conviction. I was I would have been surprised if they hadn't convicted on the manslaughter given everything. But I think that knowing just from the jury trials, I've done knowing the weight of video, I knew that if there was going to be a conviction on everything, it wasn't going to be on the finer points of the law. It was going to be on that video and I'm not surprised by it. So I was surprised at how quickly it came down, but fast verdicts tend to be guilty verdicts. They go back. They didn't ask for any evidence. They probably uh, got a four person, took an initial vote, they might, they might have been close on the initial vote, had some conversation. And I wonder if they came back quicker than they even let on and felt that the, the trial itself and the case itself needed a little more discussion. And they gave it a little bit more time and discussion and thought, because it is such a heavy thing, but I wasn't, I wasn't surprised. I'm the Minnesota felony murder statute is very strange to me. That's their courts have appealed it. It's gone up and back from their Supreme Court, but it's still, it's a wonky statute. So lawyers all over the country are looking at this going, how is that your, how is that the rule? (laughs) Let's go law nerd. What
0: what are you talking about there? What, what is odd about Minnesota?
1: So Minnesota's felony murder statute allows for the underlying assault to be also the felony. Normally you have two separate felonies as in somebody who's committing a robbery and then, a a gun goes off and somebody's killed. Well, they intended to do the robbery and somebody was killed in the course of that. That's your traditional felony murder. You, you have an underlying felony that's not the assault and then a homicide happens. In Minnesota, the underlying assault can be the felony that underlies the murder. And you're like, wait, but what? That. I, I've not seen anywhere else in the country where that's the case. And it's because you've got a case in Minnesota right now, which was an example I was giving. If two people get in a bar fright and somebody gets pushed and hits their head and dies, you can be charged with that second degree murder. And it just happened, I think, last weekend uh, to a hockey coach who had gotten into a disagreement in a bar and had been pushed downstairs. Normally, you wouldn't see that in a felony murder. That would be in your manslaughter uh, realm, those unintentional deaths. So it's a very strange statute. Their courts have, have upheld it. I, I, I'll see what we, they do on appeal with that. I'm sure they'll appeal on that count, but there's still the underlying counts that are convictions. And so it might change the sentencing if that gets overturned on appeal. We'll see. They're going to have an opportunity to take, I think, jabs at maybe Maxine Waters' comments on appeal. They're going to take time to make sure they get their thoughts voiced about the venue not being changed, about the jury not being sequestered, probably about the media coverage of the case. We'll see how the appeal goes.
0: Uh, In the last couple of years, of course, not just George Floyd, but also others, uh, Dante Wright and Breonna Taylor. How do you, as a legal commentator, approach cases like? Brianna Taylor where it's it's so heated and so divisive
1: it's been it's been very hard um, particularly when I find that the media coverage and the underlying nature of the case are very different um, what I found in coverage with Brianna Taylor is the initial media narrative that the police had the wrong address uh, kicked in the door that she was laying in bed there are still quite a large amount of people that believe that set of facts is is what happened in that case. And as more information came out, you realize that though it is a tragic case, the warrant was legitimate based on everything that's been disclosed, that the police officers were justified in returning fire. It doesn't take away how tragic it is, but it doesn't help because they're like, but how can this thing that feels very wrong also not be illegal. And having the conversations around legality and morality are very difficult, but they were difficult in law school. I mean, the first year of law school, a lot of people really grapple with, wait, this feels wrong. How is it legal? And the things are different. And explaining that when something is very, um, very heated is difficult. I tend to wait until we get all of the stuff and not do it when it's breaking so that we have the full picture and some things I just don't cover because there's nothing I can bring to it that actually helps or explains if there's already quite a lot of coverage
0: on it. Was that the first time in the first case that you kind of felt some backlash, some widespread criticism? that was probably
1: the biggest, Mm -hmm. um, case, but it's not something that's new. I mean, as a district attorney, there are definitely people who are frustrated with you doing your job. It's social media. Wasn't, um, in the mid 2000s wasn't what it was today. So you would see it under, you know, news articles online, you would see it in the anonymous comments section, how people felt about your work, but I wasn't on social media really as a district attorney for personal reasons and for safety reasons. So there wasn't that direct connection. I really try to treat every story with respect, but I also realized that If people have feelings about a case, I cannot fight with their feelings and I don't fight with people's feelings. I say, I understand that you feel that way. The facts in this case bear out the way that they do. I understand that you don't like the way that that bears out and the way that the law treats it. I get that. But if you don't like the way the law is treating it, here are the people that make the laws. They
0: are there. So I, I recently spoke with Stephanie Harlow and John Crimes. They received, their uh, true crime YouTubers received a lot of death threats over the years. How do you handle that?
1: It's interesting because it was something that I was so prepared for as a DA and not something I was prepared for as a YouTuber. It kind of caught me by surprise. I was like, wait a second, we we've, we've switched careers. What is happening? But I deal with it the same way I did as a DA. I try to evaluate it as if it is, Um, just outraged feelings or if they are credible threats. Uh, Tennessee has a lovely investigative bureau, the TBI and local law enforcement, if they need to get involved, have been very helpful. In the uh, coverage of the Toddy Westbrook case, the FBI has become involved in some of the threats that have gone on in that. So I have made sure that local law enforcement is aware, but my husband and I talked about these things early on in my career as a DA, we had instances of police protection on our home when we were still living in the South Bay after verdicts. So it's not, unfortunately, it's not new. Um, it's just different. And it kind of caught me a little more off guard, but we take the same precautions that we used to take. And, and that's, that's how we deal with it. It's a strange thing though.
0: <laughs> we brought up t- Toddy Westbrook um, yeah, multiple a times. couple <laughs> of times. Let's, let's, let's dive in a little bit here. First, how did you decide initially to talk about her case and just all those, fo- uh, so many follow-ups and it's just. <laughs> so many follow-ups. Just keep so pulling the that audience thread on like- that sweater <laughs> that you thought was just a. a a tiny crop top, but nope, it's like. Nope.
1: I had no idea that case would unfold the way that it did. And for the audience who's not familiar with YouTube culture, YouTube has its own culture within its platform that doesn't always cross over into the mainstream news. It's doing more so now with uh, David Dobrik and James Charles and others. You're seeing more crossover with large influencers uh, into the mainstream media, but not as much. And I had followed the YouTube community and the beauty community for years. And there had been scandals involving Toddy Westbrook, James Charles, Jeffrey Star, and others that I had followed. So when the news broke that she was being sued by her business partner, I was very interested. I was like, I know Toddy Westbrook. She's been off the platform for months after this other scandal. What's the business partner saying? And the first line of the lawsuit, no joke is, this is a lawsuit because of the defendant's greed. And the entire lawsuit's <laughs> written that way. And it's written it's written to be read out loud on YouTube. It was written so that we all knew the story. And it, I was just like, wow, look at all these allegations. But also coming from the law side, people are like, Toddy's this and Toddy's that. I'm like, no, the, this is allegations. These are allegations. We will see what happens. But that got picked up by international media, which really surprised me and then not even a week later toddy westbrook turned around and sued a commentary channel on youtube and that's something that's pretty rare in the youtube space that you see commentators getting sued i think knowing youtube and seeing what's been happening in the space we're going to see more defamation lawsuits we're seeing more of them in the mainstream media but i think we're going to see more of them in the youtube space and that is the lawsuit that kind of jumped the rails very quickly and went sideways. And everyone, because it's YouTubers suing YouTubers, everyone on the platform was very invested. And then other commentators were commentating on the commentary and it grew very quickly.
0: Do you have a favorite line from that? Because I I feel like you could probably recite that lawsuit (laughs) beginning to end, considering how you started it
1: there were a couple so the this is a defendant a lawsuit started by the defendant's greed was the business partner lawsuit but then in the lawsuit against the commentary channel there were a few great moments in there one of the moments came from a defense filing that said this is part of a larger murderous conspiracy and i was like this is a this is a defamation lawsuit friends <laughs> i don't i don't know where the murderous conspiracy has come from but if there is one i'm i'm very curious And the defense had entered or attempted to enter into um, evidence through judicial notice a very long list of YouTube videos. And the plaintiff's response to it was, this is nothing more than a motley crew of gossips building monuments to the gods of speculation. And it was just (laughs) so well written and just hats off to the attorneys. Because at this point, they knew they were watching us watch them. And they knew that we were watching this this lawsuit closely and that there were multiple commentators on YouTube going over every single filing in the case, and there were very many. And normally you get a you get a complaint, a few months later you get an answer, a few months later you get some law in motion, and then everyone goes to discovery and we, we hear that it resolved three years later. This had so many filings, but also One of the parties was still being very active on social media. So then it became a choose-your-own-adventure-play-along-at-home lawsuit where people could look at the complaint that listed out 40 YouTube videos and go to the YouTube videos and be like, oh, is that defamatory? Do I think it's defamatory? What do I think about it? Because the evidence is the videos that already exist on YouTube. So it was a very interesting, almost Truman Show-esque lawsuit that was playing out across social media in addition to playing out in legal pleadings. I ended up in a few of those legal pleadings. It was very surreal.
0: Has it changed the way that you do your commentary and the way that you operate?
1: No. Um, I always make clear, that what I'm doing is commentary. I'm very clear on what commentary means. And if I think something's funny, I'm going to say it's funny. If I if I think something's ill-advised, I'm going to say I think it's ill-advised. But at the end of the day, the lawyers trying the case have all the information. We only have what's in the filings and our own uh, imagination or speculation, I think what my audience appreciates is I say, this is what the lawsuit says. This is what the law means. Here's what I'm going to ponder. If this is happening or this happening, they could do this next or this next. Let's talk about where a lawsuit goes from here, what we're seeing on social media. And so, no, it doesn't change the way that I do things because when you when you stand in kind of your own voice and your own integrity, other people's thoughts about you aren't going to change how you do things. Um, so- Will I, will I cover a case with as many filings as in depth? I don't know. I didn't think it was going to have that many when I started. The lawyers just kept filing, just kept filing things.
0: It was wild. How much pressure do you feel to just keep going with, with what you can see, the, gets the clicks, gets the views, uh, versus I'm not that passionate about that. Even though it gets the clicks and the views, I want to go do something else. Where do you find that balance?
1: So my goal with the community is always to not just serve my interest and follow my curiosity, but also what they're curious about. If there are some things that they really want me to cover that I don't want to cover, I will tell them why I'm not covering something. Or if we're taking a pause on something, I'll let them know, hey, we're coming back to this at the next court date in a month. We're not going to cover everything that goes down. We're going to bunch it all together. Um, And it is a balance because as things get more viewed, Obviously you make more revenue. And when it becomes your full-time job, that is a consideration. It's not my primary consideration because I also have other streams of income as all creators should. So I can follow really what I'm curious about, what I'm passionate about, and where I can actually give some input that might be helpful. Cause some things you're just like, this is what it is. There's nothing I can tell you that's going to help or change what it
0: is. Uh, As a creator, how do you find just personally the... Time to work at, you know, do you decide, okay, every day at 6am, I'm going to do this for three hours or like, just take me through your process of deciding what you're going to do either each day or each week.
1: It's been very much a fluid and ongoing evolution because I find myself defaulting to working the way I worked when I was a DA because I did it for so long. And so it's like, no, this is when we work. This is we don't really stop. And then at night we still work a little bit more. So it's been interesting trying to modify my days. To make sure that I'm working in a way that actually best suits me, I make time to take both my kids to school in the morning. That's really our good chat time. I try not to start my workday before 10 a.m., which serves me very well because I am definitely a slow starter in the morning. And I block out time to do research because research and reading is really one of the central points of my job now. And I can't really give good or helpful commentary without knowing what i am talking about. So research and reading has definitely been nice to set time apart to just read stuff you're curious about. It's it's a nice thing that in working as a DA i was always reading my cases and working on those and didn't have time to just follow curiosities. So it's not just reading the cases but also expand kind of expanding my understanding of things like, you know, what the studies are saying about post-truth and, and, you know, how media is integrating with law right now and how I think law is changing to respond to the way media is engaging with law. So it's been nice to follow my curiosities in that way and really structure my weeks kind of loosely so I have time to do things like this interview. I have time to respond to um, requests for, hey, can you tell us about this aspect of law going on with mm. this particular influencer? Because those conversations are always fun and time to stay on top of what's changing in my field as well. So I work a lot still. <laughs> Thank you for the time, by the way. Um... No, I love I love having <laughs> conversations about this. I love talking about being a creator, and and I I really do love what I do. So how do you find time? To not work becomes the challenge when you enjoy what you do.
0: So I spent 20 years in news, mostly radio, and I I really just never turned it off. Weekends, I knew I was always on call. I was always checking Twitter and text alerts and things like that. Do you do anything, you know, consuming media, information, do you do anything like that that is not connected to creating content?
1: I mean, I kind of put everything I'm curious in, about in my content. So the influencers that I would follow anyway, kind of become the content when stuff goes awry legally. Uh, I definitely follow the housewives very closely, but even now the housewives are content because you have them getting (laughs) indicted and stuff. Like it's just wild, but I definitely make time to step away from the news cycle because it is nonstop. And if it's something I'm not covering super closely, I don't need to know the second it happens Mm -hmm. for most things, things like the Chauvin verdict. I was um, on the phone with another friend who's a district attorney waiting for the judge to come back on the bench and, you know, waiting to hear what those verdicts are because those are large moments uh, societally and in the news but i turn off twitter on the weekends entirely if something really crazy happens someone is going to text me so it's not yeah you'll it's find not out about needed. it eventually I, right i will hear about it uh i take sundays completely off of social media which is helpful for me but the race to report is is something that you can start to i can start to feel the pull towards but also i'm commentary so With breaking lawsuits, i found it's more helpful for me to take a minute and process the information than to just tell you what's happening. Any outlet can tell you what's happening. That's not really my role or my goal. I'm not a news outlet, I am a commentator. So I don't feel the pull always to be like, oh, this just happened, we have to talk about it. Sometimes, sometimes I do, but I tend to, to override that.
0: What have you put out there that you thought would absolutely hit and it just was like, nah, fell flat, On to the next.
1: (laughs) I thought people would be way more curious about Kanye West's recording contracts. I was blown away by the fact that A, he released them. B, they didn't get immediately taken down. C, he peed on his Grammy on Twitter. That didn't get taken down either. I was I was shocked. And people were like, Oh yeah, that's Kanye being Kanye. I'm like, but these are like oh, the shock value is gone,
0: right? The shock value value is is gone. Yes.
1: It's Kanye being Kanye. I also didn't think nearly as many people would be as invested in the Toddie Westbrook lawsuits as they were. I was very surprised how many people were like, "No, we want to know more about this." Um, I was very surprised how many people were invested in Jen Shaw, the Real Housewife from Salt Lake City, who was indicted on federal <laughs> wire fraud charges and conspiracy to commit money laundering. People are very intrigued by that, and it's it's a one season old franchise with the players are not as well-known as some of these other franchises, but Mm -hmm. people are very, very invested. Yeah, you put
0: Real Housewives in front of anything and all of a sudden there's some legal drama. It's probably going to get picked up on. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And I I was surprised. I mean, I sat in on the arraignment and people wanted to know every detail of that arraignment and it's unusual for me to still see that much interest in you know what is an arraignment what's happening what did the judge say what did the government say i was like really you guys want to know all of this okay let's i'll go sit on an arraignment why not that's it's been a while since i've been to an arraignment so covid has also brought this amazing opportunity where everything is is accessible by call you a lot of times courts are like, yeah, we're open to the public. You can come in and sit down and you would have to have someone at the courthouse or in the courtroom. And with COVID, it's all via call-in. So you can have people all over the country and sometimes all over the world listening into these court proceedings that they wouldn't have had access to, except in the very rare rare and newsworthy case. Did you ever have
0: anything demonetized? I know oh, you talk time. a lot about, oh, all the time. <laughs> I know because just, <laughs> just this week, James Charles, his uh, YouTube channel was demonetized. And I know you, you've uh, talked a lot about his cases and, and such on your channel. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I- so my channel has never been demonetized. I have videos that have been demonetized. I have videos that have been marked as 18 plus because of the content I'm talking about. And what's interesting about the YouTube algorithm is if there's a scandal like the James Charles scandal, it will kind of connect the name James Charles to the content. In that case, um, inappropriate messaging with underage individuals, which he's apologized for, and then a lot of other allegations surrounding that. And so YouTube will connect the James Charles name to this type of content that they deem Mm. may be not appropriate for all advertisers. So if you talk about James Charles, even if you're not talking about that content, it can get demonetized first and then have to go through manual review, which is where somebody goes, oh, we're talking about something that's newsworthy. And YouTube recently changed... Um, the way that you can tag your videos to let them know if it's newsworthy, if it's graphic, if it's not graphic. And I've seen um, in recent cases, coverage of Mostly police shootings will have multiple warnings on them that you have to click through if you want to get to the video about it. So YouTube is really trying to keep the platform, I think, advertiser friendly, while still allowing content to be seen. They're just putting a lot more stop gaps so people don't stumble across content they might not want to see. And when you do commentary on breaking, you know, legal issues, and in the YouTube influencer space, a lot of those deal with. Uh, sexually assaultive crimes and allegations of of assault and other forms of sexual impropriety tends to be the the bigger thing. YouTube will absolutely mark some of those as 18 plus. I talked about Henry Tubin and that that got marked 18 plus and demonetized within about four seconds of it being
0: up. (laughs) Uh, Not to put words in your mouth, but I would imagine your law background, your trial prep, And just being able to play the long game has helped you in deciding when to produce content, when to put it out there. Uh, I have a problem with that because as a radio guy, I create content. I want it on the air in the next three seconds. So, uh, like, I'm trying to figure out, okay, how many podcasts should I put out a week? I've got all this content. How how did you decide, okay, I want to do, you know coffee and cursey words every tuesday i want to do friday night live well, friday night yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, <laughs> how, how do you decide uh what content you put out and how often
1: the reason I lean towards live streaming is because once I've recorded it, I also want it to be out immediately because that's exactly when it's timely. Even with podcast recording, getting it to my editor and waiting for it to come back, sometimes it's three, four days later before it goes up. And I'm like, God, more happened. I need, to, I need <laughs> to put an addendum on there. So when things are dynamic, it gets frustrating. So with content that i pre-record and put out it tends to be foundational things or things that aren't as dynamic um shorter videos that are more accessible like hey if you need to know everything going on with the gerardis in 15 minutes here it is because those aren't as timely and i try to keep the timely topics to my live videos and then i will throw in extra live videos if there's a case we're following closely and something happens i did that quite a lot with the toddy westbrook case because the second there was a new filing all, all of all of YouTube fandom Twitter was like, there's a new filing. I'm like, how do you all know how to use Pacer? <laughs> Everybody's pulling court documents. And they're like, what do they mean? We, we can see that they're there, but what do they mean? So I definitely felt the pull with my community to be like, I want to know what they say too. Let's just go live and talk about it. So for me, the decision is really... What's timely and what can wait? And the foundational stuff tends to wait. Sometimes there's content I've wanted to get to for weeks and just haven't because not a lot is happening in those cases. So they can they can take a backseat to stuff like the Britney Spears conservatorship kind of ebbs and flows with lots of court documents being filed that are of public interest and then gaps of time. So it's just for me trying to pick what my audience is interested in. And often I will just ask them and say this week, there are these three things I'm interested in. What do you guys want to hear about first? And they will let me know.
0: Do you ever just go down the rabbit hole that is Britney Spears Instagram?
1: Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes, I do.
0: (laughs) Oh, Britney. What is there? There's
1: there's, her Instagram is, is tough. It's, it's, it's really, and growing, I mean, growing up in LA, growing up in the nineties and the early two thousands, Britney was everywhere watching her Instagram and then going through these court filings is heavy. And it's, it's very, very sad. Um, Her conservatorship case is definitely um, weighty when I go through it because it's, yes, it's a celebrity, but it's also someone who has had 13 years now of a very, very restrictive environment with some questionable things that happened early on. And the Netflix documentary really brought new light to the conservatorship and I think a lot of renewed interest. And I saw that in older content I had done about it, started picking up again. And I was like, oh, people are going back to try to find the backstory of this conservatorship after that brought it to light. And we've seen new legislation proposed. um, And in California, there I haven't had a chance to pull it yet, but there was new legislation passed regarding conservatees being able to bring in their own counsel and saying, no, we believe that this stands with what the Supreme Court has said and conservatives have the right to hire their own attorney um, where the conservatorship courts generally say no if they can't make decisions, that includes the decision to hire counsel. So it'll be interesting to see how her case potentially changes the way the entire system works.
0: I wanna ask uh, personally, you've brought up your husband, he's an entrepreneur. Uh, He signed up for being married to a lawyer. All right, (laughs) still married to a lawyer, (laughs) but now married to a content creating lawyer how has that dynamic changed and also now you're living in a new state yes it's during a pandemic so who knows what it's going to be like in six months to a year but just talk to me about that dynamic and how you guys have made it through this transition
1: absolutely so when my husband and i met Um, I hadn't even started law school yet. He was starting his postgraduate work up at UCLA. He's a maxillofacial prostatonist, now retired. So he owned a dental practice in Manhattan beach, and then had a sleep apnea practice that we sold due to the pandemic, um, or closed rather due to the pandemic. And he had had a work-related injury that had shifted him out of his dental practice a number of years ago. So when we were shifting to move, it, for him, it was the shift of now being retired and mm. retired fairly young and moving states. And then my work shifted from consulting with clients to being much more online. And he's getting text messages being like, oh, I saw you you guys doing this on Instagram. He's like, why do people know what I'm doing on Instagram? <laughs> I'm like, right, because my Instagram account now has you know lots of thousands of people and yeah. some of them know us and people are coming across former patients of his coming across my content on YouTube going, "Oh wait, I didn't realize that you were that baker married <laughs> married to my old dentist." Right, so it's right. been very interesting. We've been together over 22 years and as a as a marriage goes and as career goes we have shifted through lots of different parts of our marriage. When his practice was busier, when I was busier at the DA's office, when the kids were littler. So it's just another shift. It's been really great. Um, I do put him to work in my business. He absolutely helps. <laughs> he <laughs> absolutely helps. Um, what does he do? That's been really cool. He does he does a lot of my customer service help in my business, <laughs> a lot of my sourcing for my, for my merchandise store. He's also been doing a lot of the... Kids' homework and tasks that I used to do, and that mm. shifted during COVID too. When I was busy, and everybody started distance learning all at once, he couldn't go into work at all. There was nothing he could do remotely. He wasn't set up for it, so I'm like, "Okay, distance learning's on you." I've got, I've got people freaking out about how they're going to close their businesses, so I'm going to go do that. So it's been a shift, but he's been really tremendously supportive, and that's been kind of the the point of our whole relationship: these ups and downs and ebbs and flows of who's busier and who's not as busy. And since he was a business owner, his whole career, he sees the business behind just doing content, and is like, "Okay, this is very interesting how this all works." I'm like, "Yes." He's like, "So are you? What are you? Are you an influencer? Are you a YouTuber?" I'm like, "I'm just I'm a legal commentator. That we do a lot of different things, but yeah, it's 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 been good."
0: And and how far do we have to go back? Two years, three years for you both to be in what might be considered nine to fives. And now all of a sudden you're both home and yes, your two sons also home. They won't be for long because of all the distance learning and everything, but now you're both home. That's, that's (laughs) as, as somebody who's also now just home. It's so weird. It's so weird. It's very, very weird. I completely agree with you. So, we, I left the DA's
1: office in February of 2017 um, to working, well, to recover from back surgery and then to work in consulting. And he had a career ending injury in May of 2017. Oh,
0: 2017, a great year in the Baker House.
1: Great year in the Baker House. We did not anticipate my transition away from the DA's office to coincide with then needing to sell his dental practice because he could no longer practice and him going through rounds of surgeries, um, on his hand, wrist and elbow, as I was recovering from surgery, it was not planned at all. So it happened very quickly. And then he started another, um, sleep apnea practice. And in March when everything shut down, I'm like, wait a second, everyone's home. And at the time we were still living in a much smaller house. Um, and the kids were home. The bandwidth on our on our Wi-Fi was not good. And so I'm trying to do Zoom calls and consulting calls. Two different kids are trying to do work calls. He's trying to make sure his patients are taken care of over the phone. It was a March, April, May were very, very interesting in 2020 in our house. And it took a lot of patience, a lot of walks, sometimes throwing everybody in the car and going for a drive because that was all you could really do. But now it it's, A, we have more space and we have over an acre of land. We were, there were turkeys running around in the yard earlier today, all (laughs) puffed up with a, a huge tail. I'm like, what is happening out here? So we all sat around and watched the turkeys this morning before we went to school. So it's a different, different vibe, but having everybody home is weird. And I can see why when people retire it, it's a huge life shift. And I think all of us have gotten a little empathy for that working from home and being at home together all the time. It has its challenges, but we That's always
0: think that we, oh, we can we can handle whatever comes our way. Uh, how much doubt was there after 2017, having not really set this up? Now you're in Nashville, you're creating content. Talk to me about the doubt that crept in or perhaps took over many times in those intervening four years.
1: We're just going to ask all the hard questions. Um <laughs> It's it's yes, really inter- <laughs> it's really interesting when you go to work for yourself, um, especially coming from a job like the district attorney's office that has so many protections in it and still does. You have civil service protection, you you have a set salary, you know what you're um, your retirement looks like, you know what your health benefits look like. So when you go to work for yourself, that that level of security is gone. And yes, there's other struggles to being a DA, but the, the monetary stuff is all just handled. And so there, when I shifted in 2017, there was a lot of doubt in how does this work? How do I make money? What does that look like? Um, and I helped clients go through that And I was going through it myself, which was very interesting. But when it came around this time, I was like, oh, I'm looking at what my YouTube AdSense is. I'm like, oh, that's okay. We can work with that. What are the other streams of income? Because YouTube can have months that are very, very strong and months that are slower because it goes on the ad buying cycle of media companies. So you're going to get those huge numbers in December, but then they slow down a bit um, after that based on the ad buys in, in various buying seasons. So there was definitely moments for me of doubt. And for my husband, he's retired now going, okay, are we, is this good? Like, am I allowed to not go to work? I just don't go to work, right? Like, what are, how does that work? And selling a home in LA and moving to uh, more space in Tennessee, there's times we both feel like somehow we've done something wrong. We're like, we get to just do stuff we like all day. Like, totally. yeah. is that yeah. really life? I get to just do what I love. That's, it feels strange. And there's days I'm like, I feel like I shouldn't just get to sit down and eat lunch with my husband during the day. And my kids are back in school in person. So we definitely have our days where we get to work at home or we get to go for a walk or a hike or work out or go to the grocery store at noon when there's nobody there. So there's definitely days it feels like we've, we've done something wrong and we're, we're skipping school. And the doubt at this point is kind of gone because we've been figuring it out for this long. And we're like, we're going to keep figuring it out. And it might shift, but we're just going to keep shifting with it.
0: I'll ask you to put words in his mouth and speak for him if you don't mind. Of course.
1: Yes. I mean, we've been married 22 years. You know <laughs> good, I don't mind. <laughs> good,
0: good. Um, uh, how did he adjust? Because his identity was this specialized dentist. At least you got to keep your identity as a lawyer providing legal commentary. How has he adjusted uh, to not being that anymore?
1: I love that you bring up identity. Um,
0: I did, I got to do
1: a TED talk at Cal State Long Beach, which is my alma mater for undergrad. And I talked about shifting identity because. I didn't really identify strictly as being a lawyer. I, my identity was very tied up into being a DA, having a badge. My friends were DAs like it, that was very much a part of who I was. And so it took me years of kind of unwinding that. And now, you know, online people are like, Oh, she's just a paralegal. She's not even a real
0: lawyer. You know, (laughs) she's a YouTube
1: lawyer. I'm like, if YouTube would like to hire me, I have thoughts like Google. I'm around, I have thoughts. I'm licensed in California. Call me, but it doesn't bother me anymore. Cause I I've shifted into just being who I am and not really worrying about my job title. So when my husband got injured, he was like years of education to do this thing. And now it's gone. I'm like, it's weird. It's like, I gave a Ted talk on this exact thing. So I went through it and then he went through it and it has been a big shift for him because he's young. I mean, my husband's 52 years old and he's like, when people ask me what I do, it's weird to say retired. I'm like, yeah, but when you say retired, they all look at you and go, how did you do that? (laughs) Do you own Bitcoin? What is happening here? So he's, he's getting to have a different relationship with our kids because when he was running his own practice, he worked so many hours that now he is around more and in a different way. And that's been really incredible to see. So it definitely is a shift. And I think it's still a shift because From closing a business, selling a house, and moving out of state in a pandemic, we're all just getting our footing finally now, um, almost a year after we moved.
0: If I remember correctly, uh, you did a lot like what I did, uh, moving to Miami, Fresno to Miami. I just had a phone interview, and they they said, yeah, you're hired. Let's go. Come on. So I moved out to Miami, sight unseen. I had a week to find an apartment. You had a similar experience moving to Tennessee sight unseen yeah you 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 saw the house didn't visit the house tell me about that experience <laughs> we, saw,
1: we saw it over facetime um We had visited, we had had thoughts that we would at some point maybe move outside of Nashville. Um, I have friends that grew up here. I have acquaintances from the entrepreneurial space. This has become quite a hub for entrepreneurs. So I had, you know, other entrepreneurs I knew that were in the area and loved it here. So we had visited once. The kids really enjoyed it. You can't really know a place in a week. And then when it became clear that we were going to have to close a business, we're like, well... I mean, now's as good a time as any. Let's see if our house will sell. And in the middle, let's see if
0: our house will sell. This is one of the hottest real estate markets anywhere for sellers.
1: We listed our house right before everything in LA got boarded up this summer with with all of the unrest. So we were like, this is not maybe the most comfortable time for buyers, but it. Uh, our realtor's like, you're crazy, it'll sell. The only restriction is COVID and how people can see houses. He's like, but it'll sell. So once we realized that that would probably happen, we started looking for homes outside of Nashville. The inventory here is shockingly low, um, partly due to construction getting slowed down due to supply availability, but also due to the influx of people moving. So we found a house that was not yet done And our realtor walked through it and then sent us a picture of the plans and sent us like a view of the backyard. And we're like, yeah, it's great. Let's just, we'll do that. When will it be done? Are you sure it can be done? Okay. We're going to sell our house. We're going to move out. We're going to paddle all our stuff in a car and we're going to drive across the country. Did you check how
0: close it was to a Starbucks? I mean, we've got to make sure the priorities here, people.
1: I checked not only Starbucks, Starbucks, the Apple store and a Trader Joe's. (laughs) All are all are relatively close. They're not Los Angeles close. They're not, yeah. But they're all relatively close, and we definitely triangulated the area. I love where we live. The community we're in is only 18 homes, and I think there's six of us in here that are from Southern California. No, (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) so it's like, oh, you know, when you meet people, they're like, oh yeah, hi, we're from San Clemente. We're from Riverside, or and then there's a few who are like, um. Yeah, Amazon moved our jobs here. We're from Kansas and you're like, "Hey, we have one neighbor Welcome. from Michigan." So when it snowed, our one neighbor from Michigan was like, "I have I have the ice scrapers for your cars if you need them because we got <laughs> snowed in for a full week this winter and the Californians were not prepared." What was what was that like? It was very very weird because we don't have snow we didn't have snow shovels, scrapers. I broke one of the windows in my car because we had it had gotten Rained on and then frozen. And I'd never dealt with my car being an ice cube before. Hot it was very water. odd.
0: Hot water? Did you pour hot water? Is that
1: no? We were checking out of a hotel and we started driving. And I went to put my window down and it was just a sheet of ice and then the ice got stuck. Oh. It it was a mess. I had no idea. I've never driven in ice and snow like that. Yeah. It was yeah. a disaster. It's the kind of things where if I told my parents the whole story, they would have, they would have just keeled over and been like, How did you do this? But then we got we got home at the beginning of the snowstorm and snow snowplows don't come up into our neighborhood and we were all just everybody was around for a week but the kids didn't have school they went and got to play in the snow and we were we were dragging kids in like tubes and sleds and stuff down the down the street it was fun it was a fun week
0: the first five minutes that those kids were playing in the snow describe to me your emotions as a parent seeing your kids do that for the first time at, at home.
1: Yeah, it was, it was really special. And so I had gone to UMass Amherst um, in college. And I remember my first time like waking up and watching snow outside. And you're like, wow, it's kind of magical. But that's different than your nine-year-old being like, this is magic. And you're like, it is magic. And also then knowing that this only happens like once every few years, and we're not going to have to deal with this all the time. But just my kids exploring kind of new environments and new weather and they're like oh my god the snow does not taste like a snow cone yeah no it 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 doesn't it doesn't at all um <laughs> has been really fun and the snow has been a little bit more fun than maybe the tornado warnings which cause a little more concern yes. so the snow's been it was really special and it was really fun and With them just not having school and having snow days, we got to say, "Okay, it's ten a.m. We're going to go out and play in the snow and we're going to go run around." It was it was really special, and I don't think they'll ever forget
0: that. Magical is a really good word to describe that. Wow. Yeah. Wow.
1: We got to go trap trips around in the yard and look for animal tracks because the deer left all these really deep footprints in the snow kind of all around so we went looking for footprints and different a wide variety of different footprints I actually was putting stuff up on Instagram I'm like why are there so many different prints in my yard like what are the (laughs) animals what animals are walking around out here I don't know what these are somebody's like I think that's a bobcat I'm like I don't know (laughs) so I definitely did Californians adventures in snow because it's not just living in the city with snow. We're actually a little bit out in a way. And so all those different tracks and and footprints, and then the deer would come up at night and kind of eat the the greenery closer to the driveway. And so we could just watch like 10 deer walking around our driveway. It was, it was really fun. And I'm glad it's not an every year thing. I don't think I could deal with like Minnesota level snow, but right. it's yeah. really fun to have this one-off and everybody took it as a one-off. We were like, this is special. This doesn't happen all the time, so we get to appreciate it.
0: I, I, I would like to file a motion for more cursey words. I think there has been zero, zero <laughs> since we started. I'm wildly disappointed.
1: I try to rein them in. I even wear my "facts, not foolishness" shirt instead of my "facts, not fuckery" shirt. I try to rein them in. I try to rein them in when I'm on other people's podcasts. Good because because... I
0: haven't figured out how to do the blur yet on Adobe Premiere Pro. So, thank you. Exactly. Thank you. We're set.
1: We're set. It's it's something that um, I know that all of my content's going to be marked explicit. I know kind of the boundaries of where you can you can curse on YouTube, and it's been really kind of liberating because sometimes you just need to be like. What is this shit? And there's no other word for it.
0: <laughs> Emily, this has been so fun. Thank you so much.
1: Aaron, thank you so much. It was it was absolutely a pleasure. And I look forward to having another conversation with purple hair and more cursy words. I mean, I would have granted that motion way earlier in the podcast had you made it. You were a little late.
0: I've put Emily's links in the show notes and head over to YouTube to subscribe to the Aaron Bender podcast channel and like the Aaron Bender podcast on Facebook. All my links are at AaronBender.com. If you have guest ideas or comments, email me AaronBenderMedia at gmail.com. Be well and thanks for listening.